Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of The West Steps. Uh, we have a special guest for you this week, and we have one of our policy analysts in the house, and I'm going to let her introduce herself. Hey. Hey, guys. Uh, this is Stephanie. Um, I work here at the Children's Campaign as one of the policy analysts, and my role is specifically um, for our K-12 through space, as well as some of our health, eating, active living work within the K-12 through realm. So that includes you know, school food, school meals, and even beyond some of the school walls. That's great. So this week, we're going to talk a little bit about um, hunger. And I know that's a very strange thing to talk about in Colorado in a a developed country in one of the wealthiest states. Um, But can you give us a little bit of an insight what the research says and where does Colorado stand and kids having access to healthy food. Yeah, so I think one of the best ways to describe how we're facing the hunger in Colorado is what I experienced while I was in the classroom. So I taught for a couple years, and my students, you can imagine, several times throughout the day would come up to me and say, hey, Miss PC, I'm really hungry. I know we just had lunch, but I'm, you know, I didn't have enough time to eat, or I just can't focus, and I'm still pretty hungry. So I kept food in my classroom for, for when kids were hungry and those situations came up. But it's even more pronounced than that. And from what we know, based on, you know, the data that we collect and um, some of the information that the Department of Education provides within Colorado is that some kids are still food insecure, which means they're just hungry and um, they lack access to some basic meals. Some kids are only getting a meal a day, if that. um, And that that ends up being their only source of calories and um, the meal that they receive. So we currently have kids in Colorado that are not eating. We have hungry kids. What does that mean for their educational outcome? Right. Yeah. So I think you can imagine I was sitting in committee today and I was hungry and couldn't even focus on the conversation that was happening before me. And you can imagine that if you're hungry, you can't really focus on on anything other than just trying to get something in your stomach. You tend to become distracted, fidgety, and so I think this is what we see with kids where they're not acting out or maybe, you know, necessarily having any behavior issues. What they are is hungry. And I think once we get kids those meals, we have evidence and we have some research that supports if kids have access to healthy foods, uh, we see some increases in their academic achievement. OK, so it seems like there are two things we're talking about here. The first is access to just food, right? Mm-hmm. Like just not being hungry mm-hmm. in a classroom, which is insane thing to talk about. But the other is having um, healthy foods. What is the quality of food that kids get in their um, schools? Yeah, so last year as we were working on the school lunch bill that we passed um, in 2018, we found that a lot of kids responded saying that they had um, some food in their schools, but that they often left campus to go get a different meal or that the quality of the food wasn't that great. Um, And in four years, actually five years ago, the federal government made some changes to the guidelines. Well, actually, USDA did. The U.S. Department of Agriculture made some changes to the guidelines by by what they require in terms of sodium, in in terms of whole grain rich requirements. And in terms of the Michelle Obama movement. (laughs) Yes, this is the Michelle Obama movement. And I think the intention behind that was to make sure that kids were getting access to not only food, but just nutritious food that we know sometimes they can't get elsewhere mostly because fresh produce is expensive. We know that um, the cheapest meals are the ones that are delivered fast food or microwavable. And so in an effort to provide healthier meals to kids, there were changes made to the federal guidelines. 
So it really depends on who you ask. Um, some of the students would say that the meal is delicious, mostly because it's the only meal that they're getting at school in addition to breakfast. And some other kids would say that the quality is just not that great, so they're not participating. But we know that like the scientific guidelines and the food that the kids are getting at school is not one and the same, right? That, yeah, that's exactly right. And th what I should mention is that those were mostly targets. So it was saying, here's a goal that schools should strive for and, and shoot for. And what you do is ultimately dependent on the school service uh, administrators and the providers who are making the purchasing decisions through procurement. So it's a process of them creating the menu and them um, having the money to buy produce and products that are not only fresh, but good for their students Um, that align with those guidelines that are more suggestions than requirements. So how does Colorado um, stand out with the, compared to other states, right? So we know that, um, you know, we, we, we still have a lot of room to work around how we fund schools. But what does that mean for the food that kids are getting if we have kids who are going hungry and they're eating one meal a day, mm -hmm. if that, and then we have kids who are not, having access to healthy food, which is, I will say it again, an insane thing to think about mm -hmm. in Colorado. Mm -hmm. Actually, when I think about when I think about the problem and the challenges, it goes well beyond just a financial one. I think some of the challenges lie in how kids are perceived when they're receiving school meals. So one of the reasons why we started this work and we embarked on this journey with the Lunch Cabinet Coalition was because we had been hearing um, not only in this state, but around the country where kids were Um, shamed for not being able to afford some of their lunch meals. And so for parents that are working one, two jobs, working more than 40 hours a week to provide and make ends meet, um, some of these kids just didn't have the money to pay for, for food. And so the schools really try to do a, a, a good job of providing an alternative meal. And sometimes that's like a, a graham cracker and milk, or sometimes it's a cheese sandwich with graham crackers and milk. Um, but the problem is really more, it's more, it goes beyond financial. It goes um, into some of the social and emotional aspects that kids have to deal with as they're walking into school, not knowing if they're actually going to have a problem with charging their meal to their meal card or um, receiving some, some type of stamp or notice that they're actually in debt and they can't charge that meal card um, because their parent didn't pay or fill the or charge the card. So if I'm, hearing this correctly, we have kids who are hungry, kids who don't have healthy access to food, mm -hmm. and then we have kids that are being shamed for having somewhat not adequate food at school. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then we have this debt collection. Can you say a little bit more about this debt collection part? Because it seems a little bit insane about from the cost of the food to what happens. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us, can you give us a more information on how this plays out. Yeah, so I think the best way to describe it is kind of how I saw it play out in my uh, in my school cafeteria. The kids were often given some form of identifier, so it's not necessarily a card that they have. It's a number that they use to punch in and say, hey, I'm paying for my school meal this way. Um, and so what often happens on the back end of that is that parents are paying in advance for what they anticipate their students will need. So as you can imagine, a more affluent family might put more on that charge card than for another family who maybe can only put $10 or $20 at a time into that charge card. Once those funds run out, the family has the option to recharge that account that's associated with the number 
or uh, risk going into debt. So the the school will oftentimes in some districts have policies around this. But what happens is that the school or the district will continue serving those meals to that student uh, to not to avoid the practice of shaming that we just talked about. But then often send those families on to collections or send them uh, messages, whether it's through mail or email about them being in debt. And so a lot of families are actually sent to collections for the pieces that they they can't pay. Um, and that ultimately impacts the student, right? So the student is sometimes receiving an alternative meal and they're still being faced with that same level of debt, even though we know these families are working really hard to put food on the table for their kiddos. Wait, so you said something alternative food. What does that mean? It's more of an alternative meal. So if you're one of the kids who... Um, goes beyond your account or wh whatever balance is available on your account or through that number associated with your account to avoid a very obvious practice of shaming. Some schools provide what's what's called an alternative meal. And as I mentioned earlier, it's, you know, probably a cheese sandwich and some milk or graham crackers. And this is so at the very least kids are receiving Eating some type something. of nourishment and nutrients as they go back into the classroom. Okay, so um, currently, how does Colorado pay for kids to have food in the uh, in the schools? Yeah, so there's two different mechanisms. So the state pays a portion, and then some of what we receive from the federal government are based on reimbursements. So the number of students that participate, depending on their status as free or reduced price lunch students. Um, receiving a specific reimbursement rate from the federal government government for those students. Okay, and um, do we have a... So I know the Children's Campaign worked on a bill last year, and you, you just testified today on a continuation of that bill. Can you talk to us about what that legislation does mm -hmm. and what you hope this new legislation that you guys um, testified on today will do for mm -hmm. kids who are going hungry? Yeah, so a couple years ago, there's been multiple iterations of what we attempted today. So let me let me kind of take it back a little bit. So a couple years ago, uh, a lot of food advocates noticed this same trend where kids um, were quite at the level that we call reduced price and weren't receiving the meals that they needed or being alienated in a way where they were receiving alternative meals. So a couple years ago, the same advocates that are working on the bill today attempted to have and successfully had the state pass what was coverage of the reduced price lunch copay. So what that means is um, students are responsible for a portion of what that meal costs. So if you think about receiving a tray at the lunch line, what students are actually responsible for if they're a reduced price lunch student is 40 cents. Okay. The federal government reimburses the state currently at a rate of $2.89 for every reduced price meal that they serve. Mm -hmm. So there's there's really those three categories. You have your free students who um, have whose parents' income is at 130% of the federal poverty level or, or below. And then you have your reduced price students whose parents' income is between 130% and 185% of the federal poverty level. And so those are the students that we're talking about here, kids that live um, in, in poverty and whose parents are working really hard to make ends meet. So as I was sharing earlier, the legislation that initiated this whole process initially went from pre-K through second grade. And so I think the way that advocates have thought about this is in a piecemeal fashion, knowing full well that it makes sense that we feed students through, full, uh, through 12th grade. But what's happened is we started 
pre-K through second grade, then expanded to fifth grade. Then last year, we worked on expanding that to eighth grade and this year expanding through 12th grade. And so that would include all the all the eligible reduced price lunch students who would qualify for this program. So we are talking about expanding access to kids having food to 12th grade. So this legislation does not necessarily touch on the quality of food that they get, correct? Right. That's absolutely right. That's a, that's a whole separate uh, issue and, and conversation to be had. And I think there's other advocates that are focused on on food quality. And we're partnering with those th- those folks as best as we can. But at the moment, we just want to make sure the 14 percent of kids that reported um, being hungry at home or not having food that they needed when they got home are covered and that we're addressing what we can within the school walls. And these are kids who are already in extreme poverty, which is a high risk factor for how they will do at school. Right. Absolutely. And and the problem is even more pronounced for students of color, specifically Pacific Islander students um, and uh, um, uh, American Indian Native uh, students as well. We see that they report higher percentages of hunger And so there's different programs that help to address those challenges, but none within the school walls that would make the type of change that this particular legislation would make. And um, you testified today on this legislation. Can you tell us what happened in that committee and what that means for this piece of legislation moving forward? Yeah, I think... uh, well, first and foremost, the, this bill specifically for this year is to... And what ex- is the bill number? Sorry, it's House Bill 191171, the Expand Lunch Protection Act. It's been named the Expand Lunch Protection Act um, since the first uh, since uh, the first efforts came about uh, well over 10 years ago. And so in committee today, I think what was really fascinating to see were the type of questions around what warrants uh, the, the school paying for this and why should we be worried or concerned with the schools feeding kids. And I think ultimately the questions had a good intention. It's like, should there be a separate organization that's focused on getting all these hungry kids food? And there are, but not not in the partnership that I think that a lot of the legislators anticipated and were trying to get at. And for the most part, there was agreement that no kids should be hungry. No kids should be facing hunger at this point in time. But 14% of kids in Colorado are. But 14% of kids in Colorado are. And there was just disagreement about what the state's role is um, in providing foods to, food to kids, especially since when we look at the evidence behind academic achievement and kids having access to more food, it's very limited. It's only in the context of healthy food or it's only in the context of knowing that Kids need more calories and that increases their cognitive ability and some of the decisions that they make. So we know that kids that have access to uh, food report fewer tardiness tardiness and absences. We know that there is a a decrease in reported behavior or misbehavior in school. Uh, We know that another big challenge is that when kids face hunger, suicide ideation goes up. So, you know, um, when you think about the suicide challenge that our state is facing, Hunger is just another one of those pieces that contributes to suicide ideation. Um, And so when we think about... And Colorado has seen a spike in youth um, suicides over the past couple of years. Yeah, unfortunately, I think that's one of the numbers that we're not proud to report, but where we've seen quite a significant shift where we've seen reports of suicide. And it's due to a number of factors and hunger or addressing hunger is not the panacea. It's just one of the elements that we know is fundamental 
to how kids function and operate in school and their ability to focus on their schoolwork. So in today, um, in today's um, testimony, there was an agreement that kids should not go hungry, which is right basics. Um, so what happened to the legislation? Yeah, so it actually passed out of committee on a vote of nine to three. And what I really found fascinating is that you could see there was a stark difference between uh, legislators who understood the problem of hunger within their county and how it showed up or even within their school districts and those who just don't have an understanding of even what the federal poverty level means. So when we were trying to distinguish and make the the um, make it clear what the difference was between the um, uh, reduced price lunch and free lunch. There was a lack of understanding of how those guidelines are even set or how often they're set. And there were some really tough questions around addressing even above 185% federal poverty level. And my favorite comment came from Mark Baisley, who said, why don't we just solve this thing and figure this whole thing out so that kids are getting both breakfast and lunch uh, within the school walls? There, there was the concern that's typically raised within our state. You mentioned finances earlier, and there was one concern raised about Okay, who does the cost fall to? This is just another another thing that we would have to fund, another thing that we would have to prioritize. And I think if we want to see the type of academic gains and we want to make sure that our students have what they need to be successful and be well, providing them food is just one thing that will go a really long way. So I think this is going to really resonate with a lot of people because it's one of the basic things that we need in order to survive and it's food. Um, and how can people who are interested in this issue keep up with what's happening? Where do they, where can they get involved? What are other advocates other than the children's campaign people can look up to to learn more about this issue and um, really talk to the legislators and let them know that, you know, as a state, we should not have kids who are going hungry. Yeah. I think one of the things we're really proud of as, as the children's campaign and as um, in the way we do that, our, our work is that we created a coalition last year. So the coalition has been going for well over a year and it's comprised of not only food advocates, but um, your local, your local district providers, folks who work in public health. It's way more comprehensive than what I think other coalitions that I've been a part of have done. And there's intentionality behind that, right? If we want to make sure we're addressing the needs of the whole child we have to have a slew of people represented in our coalition. And so to that extent, we have direct service providers, we have community organizers, we have youth serving organizations. And last year and this year, um, we're really trying to make sure that we have youth voice and student voice represented because ultimately they're the ones that are impacted uh, by this legislation and they're the ones receiving the, the ultimate benefit. And so I think it's easy for you to get involved. If you want to be a part of the Lunch Cabinet Coalition, we welcome... We welcome pretty much anybody. We've added, you know, a few folks this year who expressed interest in this issue, knowing full well that this is just one uh, one solution to address a slew of problems within the classroom. And the legislators are mostly behind it. They understand that there is a fundamental need to eat food to work. They were just talking about being on the floor last night and being hungry and making decisions based on the fact that they just wanted to eat some food. And so I think legislators understand this message uh, more than any of the others because it's so clear last year during speak up for kids one of our um, constituents or one of the folks that participated walked up to representative jackson and said you know hey my student actually packed a lunch for his friend so that his friend would have access to food this is unacceptable 
And so I think there's a, a base level understanding of why this is a need and so many ways to get involved. There's also the organizing groups like Padres y Jóvenes Unidos, who we've partnered with um, in the last couple of years, who are who helped us collect uh, student voices and amplify student voices through a survey last year. So there's just different ways that we're making sure that not only are we supporting something that would be beneficial to students, but we're doing it in a way that engages people from every level, regardless of their background. You don't have to be a policy expert to be a part of the Lunch Cabinet Coalition. Perfect. Thank you so much for making the time this week to sit down and explain this issue to us. And um, for those of you who haven't subscribed yet, subscribe to this podcast, um, forward it to your friends. Totally. And post on Instagram like <laughs> I have. <laughs> Do that too. Or repost my Insta post. Exactly. And um, uh, please reach out to us if you have any questions and we will talk to you next week. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you.